1: Well, today's hot question is dealing with the top story and one that we will continue talking about throughout the day. As you've been hearing in the news, 176 people, including 63 Canadians, have died. That after a Ukraine International Airlines jet crashed shortly after takeoff from the main airport in Tehran. So we're curious, what is your main source of comfort in moments of grief? Do you talk about it with friends and family? Do you seek out counseling? Do you draw comfort from your faith or do something else? And if you're choosing other, give us a call on the Buzz Line and let us know what you do when you're overwhelmed or when you're dealing with a story like this that is just so heartbreaking. You can give the Buzz Line a call, 604 331 Buzz. That is 604 331 2899. And also head over to Twitter at CKNW. I will retweet this as well, at Jill Reports, and let me know what you do. And it might help somebody else. If somebody else is looking and trying to figure out how to come to grips with this, how to come to terms with this, we'd like to know what you do to deal with these moments and days of grief. Do you talk to friends and family? Do you seek out counseling? Is faith a big part of your life and do you draw comfort from faith or is there something else completely that you do? Again, leave your comments on Twitter or give the buzz line a call. 604-331-BUZZ is the number to call. Thanks for being with us. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. And as of right now, Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne uh, says that uh, while preliminary r- reports suggest, as we've been reporting, that 63 Canadians were killed in that plane crash in Iran, the number actually could change as we learn more about dual citizens uh, saying that the situation could change in the hours to come. And he's also urging uh, those who uh, whose loved ones may have been aboard the flight to get in touch with global affairs. So we do have the information friends and relatives of Canadians believe to be on board that flight can contact our emergency watch and response center. If you are looking for the number for that, it is one six one three nine nine six eight 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 five. You can also call one 3124 or you can email SOS at international.gc.ca. If you are looking to Uh, Get more information, or if you think you know somebody who might have been on that flight. Uh, We are waiting for more information, as you heard in the news as well. The cause of that crash still under investigation, although at this point it looks as though Iranian officials are not going to be handing over the black boxes and um, for the investigation saying that uh, they will look at the black boxes and uh, go from there. We're learning more about where exactly uh, some of the victims so far who have been identified where they are from. Global News has confirmed the name of two local victims, Ardalan Ednadin Hamidi, his son Kamyar Ednadin Hamidi. Our Nitu Garsha earlier today was speaking with Kai Eshmalpour, the President of the Civic Association of Iranian Canadians. Uh, He has been speaking about his memories of Ardalan and his family.
2: Everybody shocked and uh, as uh, Ardalan was an active member of the society and community uh, everybody really shocked and uh, sad that we lost him and uh, his family because uh, his wife was uh, just finished university for being able to teach the kids in the school. And they had a um, come that he was just 15. And I remember him. uh, He contributed to all the events that we had as a social or community or society or all-candidate meeting, even when he was 10 years. I remember him from that time. They were really uh, respectful uh, Family and contributing to the society as much as they could.
1: That was the president of the Civic Association of Iranian Canadians. I'm joined on the phone now by a friend of the family. Araz Rasmani joins me on the line from Port Moody. Araz, thank you so much for taking a few moments with us today.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, I know you're a close friend of the Adnadin Hamidi family. I am so sorry for your loss.
3: Yes, uh, thank you. I mean, it was a devastating uh, news. Actually, just got here last night, and um, it's so sad to see um, a family who lived here safe and sound, worked here, contributed so much to the community. Uh, you know, have to go back to visit their relatives, family in, in their home countries, and you know, this happens.
1: And that's and that's what you know of at this point. So they were back visiting family and making their way home.
3: Yes, yeah, they, they were on the flight to go, uh, to come back to Vancouver, uh, to Ukrainian air, and uh, this happened. Yeah, they were there to visit their family members.
1: All right. What can you tell us uh, about the family and, and how you remember them?
3: Well, I remember all three of them always being together. And, um, you know, to be honest with you, like, you know, I mean, I think they're still together. Um. You know, Adelon was an engineer who worked on many, many different projects, including the Skytrain projects. And, um, I mean, he, he was, he was a member that quietly contributed to his community, uh, throughout many years. He never wanted to be at the front of the stage, but he contributed so much. Um, I mean, they, they, you know, it's interesting, my dad and I, we have a small restaurant and, um, you know, they were always frequent visitors to small businesses. They supported their community through every means possible. So, um, And, of course, their son, you know, being such young age, but you know, very active in school, very active in the community. So it's, it's, a, it's a big loss.
1: Absolutely. How old was their son?
3: Their son was uh, in uh, grade uh, 10, I believe. Uh, so it would have been 16, 17
1: Right. And and did they ever have any concerns about going back to Iran or visiting or going back to the Middle East? You know, I think every,
3: every Canadian Iranian that actually makes a travel to Iran uh, always bears the risk of an unknown. I lost a very, very close friend uh, just about seven, eight years ago, uh, you know, in a similar tragedy in a car crash in Iran. So when you travel to a third world country, uh, which, you know, chaos and unexpected things can happen at any time, you know, you bear the risk. But, um, you know, I mean, when you have immediate family, like parents in there, siblings in there, you know, people, you know, not much travel for fun and leisure. They just travel to see the loved ones. I mean, they're separated from the loved ones, not so much based on their choice, but based on the situation that is just forced to them you know of, um, of uh, that basically Iranian government has created
1: right and their life in, in Port Coquitlam it sounds like as you mentioned uh, you know that um, uh, that Ardalan was working it was an engineer he'd worked on skytrain uh, his wife uh, uh, Razagi, and their son Kamir it sounds like they had made a very good life for themselves uh, in poor Coquitlam
3: oh absolutely very successful uh, very very successful I mean Adelan was able to uh, pursue his education successfully. Here, they were long-term uh, long-term residents too. Um, so Adelant actually was able to upgrade his skills. You know, when he came to Canada, he was able to practice as an engineer. He was a supervisor supervisor in in an engineering firm. Worked on many many infrastructure projects. You know, it was so passionate. I mean, he, I mean, through his company and himself, they created many jobs. Um, you know, employed employed many people. So. Yeah, no, they were doing really, really well.
1: All right, how long had they lived here? Do you know?
3: Um, I I think it was about like more than twenty years.
1: All right. And yeah,
3: so and I've known I've known him primarily through uh, his work in the community. Again, like he, you know, he he supported uh, uh, many, many nonprofit organizations with you know with his you know silent donations uh again, he was not a person who would do this for, for fame or name recognition. He would just do it uh, from the goodness of his heart.
1: All right. Uh, Raz, thank you again. I know it's a very difficult time, but thank you so much uh, for talking with us today.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, thanks for covering this.
1: All right. Uh, and again, my condolences. That is Aras Rasmani, a close friend of the Edna- Ednan and Hamidi family. Uh, let's bring in Richard Stewart. He is the mayor of Coquitlam, also a friend of the family. Mayor Stewart, thank you so much for being with us this morning.
4: My pleasure. Well, I'm under the circumstances.
1: And uh, my condolences as well. I understand, uh, again, a friend of the family. What t- what do you know uh, about the Ednan uh, Hamidi family? How close were you with them?
4: Well, we, we knew, certainly knew them in our community. They were deeply involved in the uh, in community. Uh, this was the organizer of many of the, um, of all candidates' kinds of events to uh, in, you know, involve the Iranian community, the Persian community, in our local elections, our provincial elections. We often saw them at events. We are, they, were, they were the organizers. They were the, uh, some really deeply involved, uh, community-minded people. Um, and that uh, it's just devastating to, to hear this news this morning. Uh,
1: and I would imagine, too, we're talking about so many Canadians that were killed, 63 at least Canadians killed in this crash. Uh, here's a family, um, as Aziz, Aras just said, they've lived in Coquitlam uh, 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 for the last 20 years. Uh, they, it's not as though they were new to the community. They clearly had roots here. That's got to be uh, just, uh, I mean, so sad for the community.
4: It truly is. I mean, our our our, our Iranian community in in Coquitlam in the Tri Cities is uh, enormously important. It, uh, it's vibrant. It's it's in deeply involved and deeply rooted in the community. And um, to have such a prominent member, uh, such a prominent family, to be to be lost like this um, is devastating. But I heard Raz earlier talking about the engineering, the the kinds of infrastructure projects for example i remember once being in the tunnel of the evergreen line uh, deep in the tunnel while the tunnel boring machine was going through and i ran across artalon down there and he, he uh, smiled because he was one of the people that was deeply involved in that in that major infrastructure project right in our own community as, as well as certainly others in other communities
1: uh, that was Mayor Richard Stewart, uh, Coquitlam Mayor. He was a close friend of the Edanon Hamidi family. Let's take a short break. We are going to continue our coverage as we learn more about the victims of that plane crash just outside of Tehran. Right now, though, we're going to shift gears a little bit to, and take a look at a more local story. And this has to do with something called birth tourism. And according to the latest statistics available, nearly 5,000 babies were born to non-residents in Canada in 2018- 2019. And New newborns are automatically granted Canadian citizenship again that's where the term birth tourism comes comes from richmond mayor malcolm brody is joining me on the line now because he's asking for the federal government to change some immigration laws uh, mayor brody thank you so much for being with us yeah good morning joe good morning what are your concerns with uh, this so-called birth tourism
5: well when someone comes to canada uh, from a foreign country and they fall sick or they need medical attention, I don't think many people would want to deny them that. And similarly, if if Canadians go abroad, we would hope that they would get that same kind of attention. But what we're talking about here is where uh, a mother or a a family elsewhere where the uh, mother is pregnant uh, decides on a strategy to come to Canada and it is for the sole purpose of giving birth to the child in Canada so that the child can have, have uh, Canadian citizenship. And that, of course, will augur well for the child in the future. It may give uh, flexibility of job opportunities or educational opportunities or reduced costs in, in terms of training. Uh, there's all kinds of benefits that it could accrue. And it's really avoiding our to- our whole immigration system.
1: And this has been happening for years. So, so what do you think? Is there a chance now that uh, you could actually lead to some change in the law?
5: Well, we've been talking about it for a long time. And our local members of parliament have uh, presented petitions uh, in the past to parliament uh, we've talked about it. We've talked to various government officials. The province has been active on the file as well. Uh, we're hoping that with continued pressure on the federal government, uh, that changes will be made. And and <clears throat> looking at the other side of the, the question, uh, I, I haven't heard anybody really defending the current system. Uh, it seems to be uh, people are taking advantage of it. And so why aren't we making the changes? It would just take a change to the immigration rules and uh, it's done.
1: What about families that maybe have moved to BC or other parts of Canada are working in Canada, plan on staying, but aren't actually Canadian citizens, but do plan on becoming citizens? And what if they have babies?
5: Yeah, that's the whole question of the permanent residence and, and, In in the case you talk about, you've got definite ties between that family and Canada. And so that is a situation where we don't want to make changes that that would make it more difficult for them. Uh, There are definite ties. I just stress what we're talking about here is someone with probably very little connection to Canada who decides to come here for a couple months. So that, they can, uh, so that the uh, female can give birth to a child and that child will have protected status, special status uh, going into the future.
1: And we talk about uh, people coming here and spending time here because it seems like that might be the one area where Richmond would have jurisdiction. We're talking about uh, short-term rentals, but is the issue then that people are staying for a long enough time that that also is, is not breaking any kind of law?
5: Yeah, we, we have laws, which or bylaws, which we brought in in the context of the Airbnb situation, which make for some real regulations surrounding uh, short-term rentals. But short-term rentals are less than 30 days. <clears throat> when you get over 30 days on a rental, you're into provincial jurisdiction, and, and so the city itself really can do very little we can check for a business license but there's not a lot more that we can do so we think that the root of the problem is in the immigration system the immigration system needs to be adjusted so that we can uh, take care of this situation and not have the birth tourism that we've been seeing in the past
1: and is it, uh, as the mayor of Richmond, are, are you concerned about uh, then in the future, this child, the baby that's born in Canada, could come back to Canada, could could claim Canadian citizenship? I mean, that opens the door probably to other family members as well. Uh, there's no guarantee at that point that person's going to come back to Richmond. So are you concerned about that part uh, of the abuse of the system or more on the stress it puts on Richmond hospitals and on Richmond when it's happening, when the birth is happening?
5: Uh- our initial concern uh... in terms of richmond is the stress that it puts on our medical system we need a new hospital tower here in the city of richmond uh, part of the problem is the birth tourism that that's causing the stress although there are lots of other factors reasons for needing a new hospital so the initial challenge for us are the facilities and then uh, going into the future it's not so much of a Richmond problem, uh, but, and, you know, it could affect Richmond, but it, it could affect any area, any city in Canada uh, when the child decides to come back in the future for educational opportunities, wouldn't have to uh, be registered as a foreign student. Uh, there, there could be opportunities that would accrue to that child uh, that wouldn't otherwise be open. And as you say... It could then go to the family, the the, the, the child, under the auspices of the child, uh, you could have the entire family immigrating. Uh, and maybe that's a good thing, and maybe it's not. But the fact is that there's no checks and balances on the system to make sure that the, the people we want coming to Canada are coming. It's just someone who decides temporarily to stay in our city or some city in Canada, get... Per, uh, uh, citizenship for that child, and then the you know the rest will follow from that. And right, but it's no not connection. as though
1: even if you're born in Canada, you can't just bring your whole family over without going through the immigration system. You still have to apply and go through the system. Uh, what what would you like the law then to look like? What do you think a good federal immigration law would look like? To to be fair. <clears throat>
5: um. Well. I I can't give all the uh, kind of options that could be possible. It just seems to me that, uh, first of all, the the situation of the permanent resident needs to be examined so you would be providing service to the permanent residents. But uh, in the context of what we're talking about, the birth tourism, uh, don't give that child citizenship unless one of the parents is a citizen of the country. Uh, I think that that would be a very simple change to enact, uh, and I think that it would go a whole long way to eradicating this problem.
1: And you would have to be so. Would you? You would have to be a Canadian citizen, not a permanent resident or a landed immigrant at that point.
5: Well, again, I think there needs to be some special rules around the permanent residence, the the landed immigrants. So I'm I'm just talking about the the people with absolutely no connection to the country, uh, unless one of the parents is a Canadian citizen, that child doesn't get the automatic citizenship.
1: All right. Well, we will wait uh, and see what response uh, you get from the federal government. Uh, Malcolm Brody, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Anytime, Jill. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us today. We are continuing to talk about the plane crash just outside of Tehran. Everybody on board perished in the crash. 63 Canadians so far is the number that we have been given. And we're starting to learn more about the people, many from B.C., many from Edmonton, who died in that crash. One of the other big questions is, What happened? What caused the crash? We don't know at this point. However, we are joined on the line by Jock Williams, who is an aviation expert. Jock Williams, thank you so much for being with us.
6: Hi, glad to be here, although sad that it's always this kind of an event. But I have to give you further sad news is that I have no idea myself what happened. I have some theories, but uh, I have no more information than you do.
1: No, and absolutely, and, and certainly that's what people are doing right now, is looking at what little evidence we have, what little we know, and trying uh, to figure out. Uh, can, we, can we draw anything, or, or does it help in any way in trying to figure it out, the fact that the plane went down just two minutes into the flight?
6: Well, there are several things. First of all, my understanding is that it, it had climbed to 8,000 feet. Now, that's, uh, that's pretty fast climbing for a plane to get to 8,000 feet in the first two minutes of flight, but it may have done so. But then record would show, according to what I've seen, that it supposedly disappeared from radar at that point. And that's odd. I mean, why does a plane disappear from radar? Well, e- either it ceased to exist, and we know that was not the case. Or something was wrong with either the ground-based equipment or some air-based equipment. So we know that. We know that the plane crashed at high speed because it was reduced to very small fragments. I've seen pictures of the searchers and rescuers wandering around through the wreckage, and they're, it's wee little pieces of airplane. It takes a lot of energy to rip up a great big, uh, you know, several hundred-ton airplane, and one it means that you were going quickly at the time. There's a question of whether it was going quickly straight down or going quickly relatively flat compared to the earth. And I would suggest that it was at least a little bit flat because there's a trail of wreckage over the ground. It isn't all concentrated in one deep hole in the ground as it would be if it went in nose first. But I but I couldn't see enough of the of the crash path if you will to be certain of that i think from what i saw that it looked like it hit sort of uh, in a flying uh, attitude and bounced across the ground as it tore itself apart but we have no idea there's so many things that could feasibly go wrong with an airplane although they don't usually but there's so many things that you don't want to jump to any one particular conclusion
1: uh, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that people are jumping to is the fact this happened at the same time that missiles were being launched in the area. And people obviously asking the question, is it possible this plane could have been hit by one of them?
6: Well, it is possible. and, and But the good news is this. If that occurred, that will quickly become uh, visible. It, 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 because the investigators on the ground will be able to look quite easily and quickly for any evidence of of penetration of the aircraft by high-speed fragments or by a high-speed vehicle, a a missile itself. They'll also be able to look quite easily for presence of chemical residue that would indicate an explosion as of the warhead of a missile or something like that. So that, that in a sense, would, would make life pretty easy. If we found If we found that that's what happened, there will be evidence all over the place of that having occurred. Also, the the wreckage pattern on the ground. If a plane gets hit at 8,000 feet by a major missile, some of the plane falls apart. And that part doesn't necessarily land anywhere near the rest of the wreckage. So if you find the wreckage in two distinct locations, then there's an excellent chance that something like that happened. These are the beginning steps in an investigation. The first thing an investigator does is determine whether everything is there at the crash site. And as soon as he finds that something is missing, that really gives focus to the subsequent investigation. Uh, But right now, we have no reason to believe that that's the case.
1: Iran has said that they are not going to turn over the black boxes right away. How key are those boxes?
6: The black boxes are very key they they will lessen the time it takes to to carry out a a comprehensive investigation severely i mean an investigation that might be completed in a month will take several years to complete if they don't get those black boxes but here's the point iran didn't say they won't give the boxes to anybody they said they won't give them to boeing and they won't give them to the american authorities like the national transportation safety board to me, that implies that they would give them to the British, to Canadians, to the Germans, to the French. And each of those nations has a, an excellent capacity to read the data that's encased in those flight data recorders and so on. So trust us, Canada can read that and do a wonderful job of reading it if the Iranians trust us to do so. Undoubtedly, they would extract a promise to not give it to the Americans. And I can see why they might. Be somewhat concerned about the Americans right now, as the Americans have concerns with the, the Iranians. But we we've got to put that kind of stuff behind us and get to work on investigating this accident because a hundred plus people died, you know, uh, in the wreckage of this airplane, and we've got to stop that from happening again.
1: Absolutely. Uh, what about the plane itself? Do we, can we glean any information? The fact that this was an older version of the seven thirty seven.
6: Yeah, not really. The, the sad news is that the, the version of the 737 that has gained so much publicity since the Lion Air and the Ethiopian Air crash, uh, it's quite different in its various mechanisms and so on. There's probably 5,000-odd 737 model airplanes flying already in the world, and there's going to be another 5,000 before Boeing is done making them. And there is nothing wrong with the 737 series of airplanes. I mean, I have flown them. Many, many people have flown them. They're excellent airplanes. That's why there's so many of them. But the fact of the matter is no airplane is perfect. And, and one thing that's vital in the assessment of any aircraft's perfection is if something bad happened to this airplane, did it happen because it was a bad design or because it was badly put together or because it was improperly flown? And increasingly in today's aviation atmosphere, accidents happen because the airplane is incorrectly operated. We have to look really careful at the, the data regarding what the crew did. Did the crew bring on the crash or did the crew perish trying to stop a crash that had been caused by one of the other possibilities? We don't know that yet, but we will know it if the Iranian authorities pass that information along to some appropriate organization. The Iranians could feasibly say, we will give this information to the Canadian Accident Investigation Group, but we demand that they promise us absolutely that they will not pass that same information directly to Boeing or the American government. That would be fair enough, and I think we'd sign on to that because we're trying to prevent the next accident. We're not trying to take part in a world of events debate.
1: All right, uh, Jock Williams, thank you so much. Uh, That is uh, Jock Williams, aviation expert. We are going to... Well, coming up uh, in just a few moments, we are expecting to hear from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He is going to be talking about uh, the plane crash just outside of Tehran, uh, the one that took the lives of 63 Canadians. And we are going to hear more about some of the casualties, as many were from B.C. and many from um, right here in the Lower Mainland, in parts of Metro Vancouver. So we are expecting to hear from the Prime Minister when he starts talking. We will bring you that live as it is happening. Also coming up on the program, uh, because we talked about this earlier, we talked to, to the mayor of Richmond, who was talking about the fact he would like to see immigration changes when it comes to birth tourism in Canada. Well, we got a response from an immigration lawyer who says some of the things that uh, Mayor Bro- Malcolm Brody in Richmond, some of the things that he said are a little bit out to lunch, so we're going to get an update uh, from him as well in his response to some of the things that uh, Malcolm Brody said and is calling for when it comes to immigration law, so we'll get an update uh, from him as well. Uh, as mentioned, though, when we earlier were talking to um, Richard Stewart, who is the mayor of Coquitlam, he knew uh, some of the people who passed away in that plane crash. Earlier, we talked about the fact that Ardalan Ednadin Hamidi, Nilafour, Kamzi Razagi and Kamyar Ednadin Hamidi all killed the family of three who had lived in uh, Port Coquitlam for about 20 years, so three of the casualties in that crash. Let's bring in Kay Esmalpour, president of the Civic Association of Iranian Canadians, uh, to talk a little bit more about this. Kay, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, My condolences. I know so many people are reeling and dealing with this news and what we're learning coming out of this plane crash. What can you tell us about uh, the family, uh, the Hamidi family, uh, and uh, their involvement in the community and and how you knew them?
2: Uh, uh, Actually, uh, they were a great uh, family in the community and the society. They were so active, and they put a uh, lot of their hours uh, for working, uh, volunteering in the society. And uh, personally, I knew Erdalan. He was uh, one of our uh, great members of the Civic Association of Iranian Canadians, uh, and for t- working about 10 years with him, uh, we were involved in educating the community about the Canadian life. Canadian social and political life and understanding about their citizens' rights and their responsibilities. Uh, so, I was with him for a long, long time, and also I knew of their family as well.
1: Uh, I understand as well, um, as far as work, he worked on Skytrain and was a much respected engineer.
2: Yes, uh, he was. He used to be an engineer in Iran, and when he came here, uh, he tried to get the job at his uh, field, and you know that is not easy, but uh, finally he get uh, to his uh, specialty, and he was working on the Skyfront project for the part to Kukutla.
1: And what about uh, his wife, Nilafor uh, Kamsi Razangi? I understand, too, uh, she is uh, very well respected in the community.
2: Uh, yes, she was an uh, active member, too. She was always uh, supporting uh, for all volunteer work of uh, her husband. Although uh, she was graduated from UBC recently, uh, and she was supposed to work in the uh, Suri District School as a teacher. So they were a successful uh, immigrant family. and uh, They were a happy family. And they put a lot of their effort for promoting this community and society. So every people remembering uh, remembering them well, and respect them, and uh, they're really shocked about what is happening.
1: Mm, absolutely. Uh, have you heard of any other uh, casualties with BC Connections at this point? Uh,
2: mm, uh, yeah, uh, at least four or five, more people were uh, former uh, doctors, uh, that uh, and an IMG doctor that were on the plane. Also, some of the uh, Toronto or Windsor uh, university students that I heard uh, that were they were Iranian Canadian. And also, I heard about one family that are residing in North Vancouver. Uh, they lost their life on this plane too.
1: Uh, will the um, the Association of Iranian Canadians? Uh, it might be too early for this, but is anything planned as far as helping out uh, surviving family members or helping the community process this and deal with this loss? Uh,
2: just about half an hour ago, I was talking to one of the uh, family members, and he was thanking and says what uh, their family in Iran and here. Uh, is just uh, remembering them and recognizing them because it will help their uh, uh, their father and mother and the close uh, family uh, to heal, uh, to be understanding that this community and this society is respecting the good people.
1: Mm, Absolutely. Uh, Because I would imagine there will be people uh, reaching out and asking if there is any way they can help or, or show support.
2: Uh, we are planning uh, a uh, kind of celebration of lighting in uh, Tri-City. Uh, I don't know exactly when, where it would be, but most probably it would be on Saturday. Uh, I may pass the information to you later. Also, there is a, a community club in North Vancouver that they have a weekly event, and they just uh, told me that. They are going to change the, their event to the celebration of life for these people. Those are a small uh, community clubs, but in the uh, tri-city, uh, that would be a bigger. That I we will pass the information on Facebook and social media. All right. Want to be there.
1: All right, and we will definitely uh, make sure that people are able to get that information. Kay, thank you so much. I know it's been a very sad and very uh, stressful day for you, but thank you so much for taking some time with us.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: All right, that is Kay Esmalpour, President of the Civic Association of Iranian Canadians. And again, we are expecting Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to speak about this.
5: We're hoping that with continued pressure on the federal government, uh, that changes will be made.
1: That was Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody. He was speaking on this program. He's asking the federal government to change immigration laws to stop what is perceived to be a loophole when it comes to Canadian citizenship. Now, um, according to the latest statistics, about 5,000 babies were born to non-residents in Canada in 2018-2019. Newborns in this country are automatically granted Canadian citizenship a practice many refer to as birth tourism. Now, after we had that conversation with Malcolm Brody, uh, Richard Curland, who is an immigration lawyer and policy analyst, reached out and said, uh, wait a minute, uh, I take a f- some issue with some things that were said. So we thought, well, come on the show and let us know what uh, what you take issue with. And Richard Curland is with us now. Thank you so much for being here. A pleasure. Uh, so when you heard the mayor of Richmond say he mm. wants a crackdown, he wants it so you're not automatically a Canadian citizen, unless, say, one of your parents is a Canadian citizen. You have to have some connection to this country. What's your response to that?
7: Well, I I tried reaching out to his office in the last day or two, but uh, his numbers are just plain wrong. Even Immigration Canada raised an eyebrow, and I have here the Statistics Canada data 2016. And we're not talking about a lot of people. It's for all of Canada, 313 babies were born out of 385,000. And the Immigration Canada Senior Management reports the discrepancies in numbers by the two data sources is the reason why uh, data the mayor's relying on is absolutely wrong. And here's why the mayor's relying on data that includes babies born to international students foreign workers, protected persons like refugees. Uh, And I'd add to that that uh, under BC MSP rules, you don't get BC MSP coverage for the first 90 days. So you get all of those births lumped into uh, the data that Mayor Brody's uh, uh, using. And it's kind of not his fault because the Nonprofit institute responsible for generating that data. It's not an immigration institute. It's kind of a medical services information institute that's not for immigration policy purposes but for medical analysis. So at the end of the day here, all of Canada, except Quebec, over 300 births take off that number 10% of the birth to First Nations, because BC hospitals are very often the nearest hospital to the band. And so this, in reality, is a local Richmond problem. You've got prenatal care services being offered by Richmond-based businesses And those prenatal care services can be licensed by Richmond to put a stop to a Richmond problem. We don't have to amend the Citizenship Act or the Immigration Act. I've seen this pop up uh, because of um, a Richmond publication uh, years ago and because of the importance of the Richmond writing. The members of Parliament brought it to standing committee where this whole thing was debunked in a day. So the numbers aren't there. you got a problem in Richmond, find a Richmond solution. The answer is in zoning uh, and hit them big. If they want to offer prenatal care accommodation, they should be in the same package as hospitals offering prenatal care, and that should drive up the cost for these commercial entities to stave off the flow of um, uh, passport babies.
1: Right, and I guess one of the the issues, or that the mayor brings forward as well, is that what you're talking about—people that are offering these short-term stays at these prenatal homes that offer prenatal, postnatal care—but also the strain he says it puts Mm. on the hospital.
7: And I agree. Come on, we want every advantage, every benefit to Canada as humanly possible. If there's illicit prenatal care services being offered by Richmond. Uh, Put a stop to it. Maybe for money purposes, ask your province for help. Knock on the door of those uh, uh, local MPs and ask them uh, for uh, Ottawa's help in resourcing the zoning and regulation and enforcement that's required for Richmond. Yeah, I don't see this happening anywhere else in the country, so (laughs) we don't need to change our national laws to accommodate one municipality in British Columbia.
1: Uh, we have talked about stories in the past, though, because Canada is not the only country that offers automatic citizenship or birth citizenship, but, but mm. we've talked about even people at the U.S. border being turned back, beca- women ter- being turned back because they're pregnant. Uh, is, there a, a, is there a role here for customs in that if you're arriving in Canada with no ties to the country and you're noticeably pregnant, that, you don't be, that you're not admitted?
7: You bet there is two, two slick points is one is they don't get them because they're pregnant. They're getting them because they falsely stated the intention behind their visit. So you're not coming to go to Niagara Falls, you're going to give birth. And saying you're coming to, as a tourist is flat out wrong. We can do the same in Canada. And the second thing is if you want the, uh, the 101, when An infant departs Vancouver International Airport, have a peek at the passport. If it's a newborn, let's say they're from a country like China, and you see the city of birth Vancouver, just pick up the phone, give a heads up to the kind people in Beijing Airport and say that, oh, by the way, under your law, Uh, you can't be a dual national. So this this family's coming in with a potential Canadian here. Why don't you ask them to choose between Chinese citizenship or Canadian citizenship and let them make their choice on the spot? If they want to be Canadian and not uh, Chinese, bye bye free education, health care, and accommodation subsidized. Uh, You'll kill this business overnight if you just use your head and uh, get some quick policy making on the ground. Yeah, uh, kudos to the mayor for bringing the issue to the public, and I hope resources flow like a river of gold from Ottawa and Victoria into Richmond. But the solution is plain simple. Prenatal care services, accommodation, zone it. And make it go away.
1: So, um, you make an interesting point. So, with that Canadian passport, so if a newborn's heading back, down we'll use China as the example. Uh, born in Vancouver, so would they would they not be checking for that though when that family is going back into China?
7: No, nope. there's no reason. They're right. Chinese citizens. On a Chinese and, passport. And the
1: baby wouldn't need a passport or wouldn't have a Chinese passport?
7: Would not, they would have a Chinese passport, and uh, it's common as uh, Vancouver rain to see Chinese passports issued by the Chinese consulate here uh, because the child is a Chinese citizen. Uh, they, they don't claim Canadian citizenship while they're here. They can, but it takes a long time. Uh, they can claim years later. And, and we've all been looking for data. What happens if they do 18 years later?
1: That's <laughs> <because> my question. <laughs> yeah. We're
7: not paying for their education. So all of a sudden, the, the, their English is perfect enough to go to universities here. They can get jobs here. No, the reality check says it just doesn't happen. The data clearly does not demonstrate Any trend, never mind a trend, any trend uh, that uh, this flow is trampolining back to Canada. This is all theoretical.
1: So then what's the point, though, if people are coming here to have their babies born here so that they can apply and become Canadian citizens? Mm. What's the point if they never come back and do that?
7: Well, it's, a, it's an insurance move, and, and I like it uh, because what if things go sideways in uh, China or any other country? You want an insurance passport, normally not for your family. You also want uh, the equivalent passport for your capital to get out of Dodge if things go wacko. Uh, so I, I understand the need, but what are the numbers? Uh, don't forget, Canada Canadians do the same thing in other countries, like the United States. And I have a feeling, if you actually parse the data, that there's going to be more than 300 Canadian citizens who cross the U.S. border so that their child can become an American citizen. So we're not uh, entirely without sin. We shouldn't be throwing stones too fast.
1: And you can do, then you can do that. It's the same type rule if you were to have a baby in the states. Yep, same. All right. And,
7: and so so this is it. So nice try, guys, but uh, there's no need to amend our citizenship laws. What I, my, my political twinge is someone's come up with an issue that makes the pulse race. Foreigners are getting away for something. We've got to get tougher. Well, the data's not there. I don't want to say false news, but it's, it's a data that is twisted. Uh, and was never collected for the um, uh, purpose uh, that it's being used for today by Mayor Brody.
1: All right. Well, Richard, I appreciate you joining this conversation and uh, reaching out and uh, being available to come on the show today and talk about this. Thank you so much.
7: Always an honour and a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. And just a reminder, the Prime Minister is expected to speak at some point soon, some point this afternoon, uh, talking about the plane crash near Tehran. And we will bring that to you as it happens. Right now, though, we want to shift gears and talk about a story that will have an impact on a lot of commuters, anybody who uses the Patello Bridge or lives in that area. And the Surrey Board of Trade is once again urging the B.C. government to reconsider a four-lane new bridge and instead build a six-lane bridge, saying that that is the best way to prepare for future growth in the region. Anita Huberman is the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade and joins me on the line now. Anita, thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Uh, you and many others have brought this up in the past, saying replacing it with a four-lane bridge will do nothing when it comes to future population growth. What has kind of sparked this conversation again?
8: Well, the B.C. government, they've selected a, a partnership of construction companies at the end of December, and so that really sparked uh, for us to reinstigate and re-implement the conversation and dialogue to the B.C. government. Uh, they have an opportunity to really open a six-lane bridge in 2023 instead of a four-lane bridge uh, to prepare for future population growth.
1: And in the past, we've been told that while Surrey has been in favor of this and wants this bridge to be six lanes, New Westminster has really been standing up saying we don't want six lanes. Is that still the case? That is still the case. Uh, We've spoken to the the mayor of New Westminster on this matter,
8: but this needs a complete revisit. There's going to be 1.3 million people moving into this region by 2050. Uh, The mayor of New Westminster, he's also the chair of the mayor's council related to uh, transportation investments, and we really need to focus on future transportation infrastructure focusing on our future not just catching up this is a regional bridge uh, not only a connection between surrey and new westminster
1: and do you think that there's any any room for movement there in that new westminster does seem to be uh, kind of digging in its heels so not wanting the increased traffic i suppose the truck traffic uh, saying uh, that they just don't want this
8: I think there's an opportunity to uh, really revisit the discussion in collaboration with the B.C. government and uh, the city of Surrey and the city of New Westminster together uh, to take a look at how this can happen with six lanes because there's always a way. Um, replacing a four-lane bridge with another four-lane bridge uh, is uh, completely a backward type of thinking, and uh, we really need to think about uh, how are we going to prepare for future economic growth? Uh,
1: do you feel that it's it's almost kind of uh, the continued so-called uh, war on the vehicle? Because it's not only the Patella Bridge we're talking about. When we look at plans for the replacement of the Massey Tunnel as well, with this idea of replacing it with an eight-lane tunnel, with the way things are right now with counterflow or even with the lanes that are proposed, it, w- it also wouldn't offer more capacity uh, to passenger vehicles.
8: Well, I think, number one, we have to realize that we do not have the transportation infrastructure that we need in the region uh, for today's population and the future population. We do want to get people out of cars, uh, so expanding bridges, replacing the Massey Tunnel, perhaps with a Massey Bridge, which is our position, um, is only part of the solution. We need a complete rehaul of uh, new transit investments uh, in Surrey and South of the Fraser uh, to get people out of cars, but uh, cars are part of the equation today and uh,
1: and in the near future. So let's make sure that we're building this Patello Bridge for the future. Uh, and because even talking about a six lane bridge, and part of the reason that we're told that the the plan to replace the tunnel, the ten lane bridge was axed was because it was, according to some people, too big. Uh, But we're not talking about a 10-lane bridge here. We're talking about a six-lane bridge, which isn't that much more than what's there right now.
8: Well, as I understand it from the specs of the Patello Bridge, uh, it can open to six lanes. Uh, Right now, uh, it's prepared to open with four lanes. Uh, The uh, lanes are widened. Uh, There's going to be room for pedestrians, for cyclists, and perhaps in the future, an opportunity to expand the bridge to six lanes. What we're saying is in 2023, when this bridge is expected to open, this new bridge, we want it to open with six lanes.
1: Uh, for traffic to flow through, uh, not just four lanes. And does that include some kind of rapid transit or transit-only lane? That can be part of the discussion and should be part of the
8: discussion.
1: Again, we're trying to
8: get people out of cars. Uh, we are talking about uh, maintaining climate efficiencies. Uh, but, you know, number one, we, we have to focus on our population growth. And uh, we're, we've been starved of transit investments and transportation infrastructure that we need. And uh, and absolutely, uh, you know, all of that has to be on the table. We need to take action now.
1: No. And one of the, the arguments, too, I suppose could be that we're, we're talking about people transitioning to electric vehicles to more environmentally friendly vehicles. So if, if that's the case as well, that means there are still going to be people with vehicles on the roads and those vehicles do need to get from point A to point B.
8: Absolutely, electric vehicles are our future we 're seeing that in the automotive industry you 're going to see that in the automotive show I expect in Vancouver uh later this year and uh, and that's part of the equation but um, You know, the B.C. government has a real opportunity to provide leadership around transportation. Congestion does cost business. And I'm hoping that they will revisit
1: uh, this decision. Uh, So where do you go with this uh, from now in that there hasn't really been an appetite or it doesn't seem like there's been an appetite in the past to explore the idea of a six-lane bridge? Like you said, uh, they've now uh, selected a partnership for construction. What do you do now uh, as far as getting more attention paid to this or getting at least the discussion started up again about the potential or the idea of a six-lane bridge?
8: Well, this has been an ongoing advocacy for the Surrey Board of Trade. Uh, we sent a letter again to uh, the Transportation Minister, uh, hoping to reinstigate that conversation. We've had these conversations even in person uh, with her before, um, but I'm hoping that uh, she will revisit this. This is Minister Trevina and uh, and the whole B.C. government on both sides of the house because Surrey is going to be the largest city in British Columbia, and we
1: need to ensure that we have the transportation infrastructure that we need. Uh, Do you know if the mayor is on board with the idea of six lanes? Uh, This current mayor, I'm not sure. Uh, Certainly the previous mayors uh, were in alignment with our advocacy position on this matter. All right, Anita Hubberman, we will leave it there. Thanks so much for your time. As it is the final half hour of this program, we wanted to step back a little bit and bring you some, well, I think it was shocking to a lot of people. And it has to do with the royal family. And Claire Allen, who is a CKNW contributor, is joining me in studio to talk about this. Hello to you. Hello, Jill. So I will fully admit, I generally cannot care Any less about what the royals are doing. They seem like nice people. It's great they travel, they've got kids, have a great life. You're not a monarchist. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not a royal watcher. I don't I didn't get why everybody was so excited about finding them on Vancouver Island. Mm -hmm. I thought we should just let these people have a nice vacation. Let them live? Yes. However, this story intrigues
0: me a little bit. It really intrigued me too when I saw the announcement. To be honest, I was a little shocked. Yes. (laughs) And so this is some major news for royal watchers today. In an official Instagram statement posted on their Instagram, uh, uh, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, a.k.a. Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan, have announced that they intend to step back as senior members of the royal family and work to become financially (gasps) independent, Jill. What does
1: that mean? What does that mean?
0: People... Because I, I will admit, I follow a few uh, royal Instagram pages. So that's how I found out about this. I follow some fan pages. And people were shocked. So I went. To, I wanted to get some reaction to this breaking news. And so I spoke with Patricia Treble. She is a royal contributor to McLean's magazine. And I really wanted to get her reaction to this announcement from the royal couple.
9: Expectedly unexpected
0: is my reaction
9: to this news um, that you know, that Harry and Meghan are going to step away from uh, their duties as senior members of the royal family. They've been, in the last few months, increasingly unhappy. Um, the attention um, on social media from the press in Britain has been intense. And and not everyone can handle that. Um, you know, I mean, William and Kate seem to be handling it quite well, um, but Harry and Meghan aren't. And, you know, they were clearly unhappy. You could hear that in the, the interview that they gave when they were at the end of their tour of South Africa, of Southern Africa. You know, when Meghan talked about, you know, it's not enough to just exist. You have to thrive. And when Harry talked about how every time he hears a snap of a camera, he thinks of his mom, you know, and, and her, you know, the torment that she went through from the paparazzi back in the 80s and 90s. And so... Was I expecting this? No, but I can't, everyone kind of felt it was coming, and there have been rumours about this for a bit.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so just to refresh everyone's memory, Patricia was referring to the interview the couple did with ITV News at 10 Anchor, uh, Tom Bradby, last year. Here's a clip from that interview. I think being part of this family and this role and this job, every single time I see a camera, every single time I hear a click, every single time I see a flash, it takes me straight back. So in that respect, it's, it's, the, it's the worst reminder of her life as opposed to the best. Um, everything that everything that she went through and what happened to her is incredibly raw every single day and that's not me being paranoid, that's just me not wanting a repeat of, of the past.
1: Look, any woman when they're especially when they're pregnant, you're really vulnerable and so that, was made really challenging and then when you have a newborn and especially as a woman it's really it's a lot so you add this on top of just trying to be a new mom or trying to be a newlywed it's um yeah well I guess and also thank you for asking because
9: not many people have asked if I'm okay but it's um it's a very real thing to be going through behind the scenes
2: and the answer is would it be fair to say not really okay? In, it's
1: really been a struggle. Yes.
0: Very sad. <laughs> There was actually quite an outpouring of support for the Duchess of Sussex after that interview aired, because I think a lot of people didn't really think about putting themselves in her shoes, you know, under the constant criticism. Yeah, it was real. It was very real. And some would say that we don't see that side from the royals that often, and maybe it was refreshing, and it made people think about, you know, the intense scrutiny that they are under as public figures. Now, Jill, you mentioned how they were on Vancouver Island over the holidays, and Mm -hmm. how there was a frenzy to find them, right? Yes. Apparently, they took a picture of somebody and that picture was publicized everywhere. Even though they weren't in it, they were just behind the camera. Like that was, that was the frenzy that was around their visit. And there was a lot of speculation that they had such a great time on Vancouver Island that they want to move to Canada. Hmm. And so in their statement, the Sussex, the Sussex said that they will balance their time between the United Kingdom and North America. They didn't, spec- they didn't uh, specify where. Mm-hmm. So I asked Patricia what she imagines this us pre- unprecedented arrangement will look like.
9: I've been thinking about what would happen if they do step back for a while. And, and what is interesting about their statement is they said they're going to balance their time between the United Kingdom and North America. North America is not the United States, where she, of course, is a citizen. She grew up in California. Um, and they're going to continue their, their duty to the Queen, the Commonwealth, and our patronages. The Queen is the Queen of Canada. The Commonwealth, Canada is the senior member of the Commonwealth, and the patronages. A lot of the patronages have branches or have you know adjuncts here. Like the Invictus Games were held here. I think that they're coming to Canada, and what would it look like, I'm not sure uh, whether they would have chunks of time in both countries. I mean, you can live in both countries. I mean, a lot of people do. Um, you know, a lot of people take you know huge you know chunks of time a summer here. And then they spend the rest of the time in Britain. I think what it's going to look like is I think they're not going to be the traditional royals. They're stepping. They clearly have indicated that. I think they're going to still do all the big events, um, but then what they'll do is they'll they'll split their time. They clearly want to get up their own patronage, which is the Sussex Royal um, of charity that they've started, and they want to become, as I said, more independent. Um, and it. And so I I think they know that their future, if you look down the the road, look 20 or 30 years down the road, their future is almost certainly not as working royals. And I think they're going towards that goal. How they're going to get there, I think we'll find out. But it's going to be very interesting, and I think Canada's going to play a pivotal part.
1: Hmm. I know. Interesting. Kind of cool. Do you think uh, Meghan Markle didn't realize what she was getting into? Because when she first married him, my, my big thing was I realized she was not allowed to work anymore. She had right. to give up a very successful or a successful career in mm-hmm. acting. Maybe she did underestimate exactly what the pressures and what that life would be like.
0: You know, I will say, I think you're probably right. And I think that a lot of us don't really maybe understand the pressures of that life. Uh, She said that, you know, her British friends had warned her about what comes with uh, being involved with a royal, let alone married to a royal. Um, So you're probably right. She didn't think about that. And um, you're, you're right. Before she did work, she was a successful actress. She earned her own money. And in the statement that they put out today, Prince Harry and Meghan said they will work to become Financially independent, which is something a lot of people have, you know, really perked up on. And Patricia explained to me what that possibly means.
9: Aside from the queen, who gets money from the government, it comes originally from the crown of states. Nobody gets like nobody's paid by the government; they're not employees. Um, so all the senior members of the royal family, aside from her and prince charles who has these huge ancient estates that he gets that's where he generates his income from they're all actually all get their they're all funded by the queen and prince charles privately from their private money but if you're no longer a member of the working royal family then of course why would the queen and charles use their private money to pay for your staff for you know your clothes your work clothes your travel things like that and that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the fact that if you're if you're no longer doing those big duties, then you lose a lot of the bonuses, I guess, associated with royal life, including, quite frankly, protection. I mean, they have police protection. If you're no longer doing big royal duties, you don't get police protection. But then they're Harry and Meghan, probably the most famous couple in the world, and they need police protection. And so that's what I think they're talking about, being financially independent. I mean... She has money from, obviously, her acting career. He has money, he's inherited from his mother and from his great-grandmother, the Queen Mother. But that will only take you so far. Um, you know, I mean, because if you're talking about, you know, buying houses or anything else like that, you can very quickly um, go through that money. And so I think that's what they're talking about. I don't know how, what that's going to look like. Um, that's a very interesting thing. Is she going to go back to work? Um maybe but can you imagine that that would not quite sure you could honor your duty to the queen and appear on you know a suits movie i'm not sure quite sure how you can do that
0: so that is going to be an interesting question Suits starring the Duchess of Sussex. (laughs) Who knows? I mean, who knows what it'll look like? Um, So the real question uh, after the statement came out was how has the Queen, how has Buckingham Palace responded? And this is a statement that was released from Royal Communications. It reads, discussions with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex are at an early stage. We understand their desire to take a different approach, but these are complicated issues that will take time to work through. Hmm. How do you read that? Not so happy, I don't think. There are some, there's speculation out there that maybe the Queen was not uh, consulted about this announcement. So I think there's speculation that other royal family members are unhappy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's an unprecedented move. It's very interesting. And I think, you know, maybe we might have some royals living amongst (laughs) us in Canada.